What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am here with Offman Laraki, CEO of Color. Offman, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a treat to have you. Bethany, thank you for having me. We're so excited to be here with you today. And I'd love to kick things off just hearing a little bit more about your background. Could you share some of your story with the Breakline community? Sure. I guess I'll start at the beginning. I'm originally from Morocco. I was born in Casablanca, where I grew up. My father is Moroccan. My mother is French, but I grew up there. Very fortunate to have the opportunity to come to the U.S. for school initially. So did my undergrad in the Bay Area, which happened to coincide with the early years of the internet explosion. So it was the late 90s, early 2000s. So I got to see the first big internet wave. And so I was a uh, you know, spectator to that. And that really set in motion, I think, my career and the direction I was going, but right out of undergrad. So while I was there, I you know, got to see a lot of amazing companies be created. A lot of companies also start and fail. And just seeing kind of the entrepreneurial circle of life play itself out a little bit, decided to start a company right out of school that in the mobile space, it, was not a successful initial endeavor, but was uh, very successful at learning a lot, but ended up getting acquired by a Japanese company where I worked for, for a while, after which I went to grad school and then joined Google as a relatively early product manager. And so got to work on a lot of the kind of interesting, amazing products kind of that were at the kind of early phase of Google's growth, including a lot of speed technology, like just literally try to speed up the internet, <laughs> as well as so some things like deep in the bowels of how, how the networks work and how browsers work, and got to work with the team that started the Chrome browser project, so helped get that off the ground. So it was an amazing experience. After which I started another company that later got acquired by Twitter, where I was VP of product, which, again, I was very fortunate to be there at a you know really interesting point in time, and then took a very non-natural next step, which was to start a healthcare company called Color, which is what I've been working on for the last eight years. And that has been just an incredible journey so far. And I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it today, but really getting to dive in very deep into this incredible industry with a huge amount of opportunity to have a lot of impact, where I think there's still probably the single largest opportunity for technology to influence a huge industry in the economy, but also one that deeply touches the lives of people every day. And that is, at, I think, one of the biggest cross-sections of social equity. And so it's been uh, this really kind of instructive discovery process also, and one where I think for, for me and the folks I work with, just an incredible opportunity to 
get to serve a lot of people across the US and, and try to kind of grow our impact in a very kind of real and tangible way. But that's kind of been my path so far. Aside from that, on personal life, I have married, have uh, three children. I have three boys who are nine, seven, and four and a half years old. And they're a lot of fun and also a lot of work. So um, <laughs> that's the summary. <laughs> oh my gosh. Awesome. Well, I want to get into color because it's such a fascinating company doing amazing work right at the time when we need it most. But you shared so much richness there. And I don't want to move on before we have a chance to just dig in a little further. It's about 35% of our breakline community identify as immigrants or first-gen American citizens. And I have so much respect for that journey and the courage that it takes to step into a new world, a new culture, a new language a lot of times. And you quickly touched on growing up in Morocco and moving to the U.S. for college. Do you think about your heritage? Do you think about your childhood in Morocco? Do you miss that environment? Does it inform who you are today? Or does it really feel like two different, completely separate chapters in your life? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's it's one of those where there's one part of me, I think that over time, my entire like professional life has grown in the US since at some level. And so, but I think when you've really grown up in a different environment and different world, I mean, I think it I think for me, at least, I find it's one of those, it's just been such an incredible, I've been incredibly fortunate, I think, to be able to live truly these two relatively distinct like identities. And that I think helps a lot with just kind of having perspective on, I think when you're in one world or it's maybe a bit more difficult to have empathy for just completely different circumstances. Like for example, in, I mean, Morocco is an incredible country with very deep and long history and but also, and also the, one of the things that actually, I think, impacts a lot of how I think about the work we do today is that you, it's a much more kind of integrated society from the perspective of both religiously, as well as heritage-wise, ethnically, as well as socioeconomically, where like, I think getting to grow up and experience like a lot of diversity in a very kind of like blended context, I think, at least for me, has, I think, been really helpful just to understand people better and to be able to relate more easily with very, very different groups of people. And and also never feel like just an insider, frankly, like, even though, I mean, I'm very fortunate to be working in privileged environment and so on, I think never taking it for granted. And so kind of appreciating the opportunity. And yeah, so at least for me, I feel that's kind of one of the things that really it has given me. But yeah, I feel like it's in some ways, I think one of the things that I hope, you know, to bring to my children to like, just to not kind of grow in a, an environment that feels like everyone is the same in some sense. And so that's kind of, I think, one of the one of the great things about living in different worlds. So I recently interviewed Adam Markowitz, who's the CEO of a company called Drata. And he said, you want to either live the pain or live the solution of the company mm-hmm. that you're building. Mm-hmm. And and it's really neat to hear your reflections on Morocco and Moroccan society and how that informed part of what you're building at Color. Yeah. And also, frankly, also getting, being a, and to be clear, like I have not had like a difficult minority experience, but that being said, being a Muslim in the U.S. as an immigrant during September 11th, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think 
having those experiences and seeing that kind of coming from a play in Morocco, I was an insider in some sense and had my own, like, et cetera, and like being in the US, but like also on one side, having a lot of privilege, but also mm. getting to experience the other side of it, I think also really helps like never taking anything for granted, right? Like, and seeing the full spectrum of like, I had phase of time where my visa was revoked and <laughs> wasn't able to come back in and wasn't sure every time I travel, whether I could come back in and, and so on. And actually, even when our third child was a few months from being born, I was traveling and wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to come back in. And those just getting to, not that I would want to relive that, but it's, I think it just kind of helps not take too many things for granted, I think. <laughs> so true. And there's part of me, one of the things that I've been reflecting on, and maybe because our community at Breakline is so diverse, and I appreciate that diversity as an enormous strength on mm -hmm. a daily basis. And so in my mind, I sort of am constantly in juxtaposition to, I think, in a facet of American culture that puts a premium on categorization. Like, mm -hmm. you are this, or you belong in that box. Almost trying to create simplicity out of something that's complicated. And, mm -hmm. and the fact that it's complicated also makes it amazing. And so I just love to hear about the various identities that you've talked about and the friction points in your life, but also the reality that you've pushed past those friction points to contribute to really interesting companies and now to create your own company it just seems to me you are the fullest expression of who you are. And yeah. why would we want you to be anything else? I mean, honestly, I think that's one of the remarkable things about the U.S. And again, like every yeah. place has its own challenges and issues and, you know, et cetera. But like, I think the U.S. is truly unique or I don't know if unique is the right word, but like really kind of distinguished, I think, in the world, I think, as for a place with boundless opportunities. And again, like, I don't think these opportunities are equitable yet, et cetera, et cetera. But it is just, I think, quite remarkable how, to your point on the identities and labels, yes, there are all these different labels, et cetera, that are sometimes unfortunate or not the right ones and so on. But also on the flip side, like I think people's, the opportunity to relabel yourself and to create yeah. the label that identifies you in the US and the different parts, right, like is quite remarkable, right? Like, and mm -hmm. it feels like it's, a, it's not a monoculture in some sense. You can be incredibly successful in the US in a huge variety of ways, mm -hmm. which I think I really, I think is quite remarkable, whether it's like on a philanthropic thread, you can be at the top of and, and compete effectively, quote unquote, on that, or you can be environmental or tech or banking or medicine, et cetera. And I think that's amazing, right? Like just kind of that range of opportunity, right? Like the fact that that's why someone like Elon Musk, this is the place where he and the amazing people that are willing to go on the journey, you know, revolutionize space exploration. That, I think that's very unique, right? And, and I think it's an incredible strength, I think, for the US that I think, that I hope is a big part of, you know, how we continue growing and evolving the country and contributing to the world. So... Mm -hmm. I interviewed, or we interviewed, our team interviewed General Vince Stewart, and you might be interested in his story. He arrived mm -hmm. from Jamaica in the U.S. as a teenager. He had one backpack and like mm -hmm. $50 or something. And he ended up joining the Marine Corps and rising to become a general. And he said, 
the U.S. is the only country in the world where Mm -hmm. I could succeed in that way. And he said, and we can acknowledge that and we can feel patriotic about that and also acknowledge, hey, if we're setting the standard for what success looks like, let's keep going. Let's not like be complacent and say that this is good enough. Let's keep pushing so that we can, you know, create even more equitable outcomes across our society. Yeah, it's a great framing. And yeah, I 100% agree with that perspective. Mm -hmm. So I want to get into color. I'm so fascinated by the company. I've been following y'all for a couple of years. And I'm really fascinated by the origin story too. You have a computer science background. You had been in tech for many years, VP at Twitter. You were like at the top of the game and then decided to create a company in a different industry. And I really love that type of transition story because one of our central tenets is excellence is transferable. Mm -hmm. And someone who's outstanding in one domain often tends to have what it takes to be outstanding in another domain. And we should really encourage those leaps. But it does take courage and it does take insight and it does take grit. And so I'd love for you to talk to us about the opportunity that you saw and what compelled you to go after it. Yeah, no, happy to talk through that. And maybe even before diving in, like to your point about like the jumping into a new field or something that you don't know about. And I feel like one thing that often happens is that we, when we feel like an outsider, especially when we're like, we're used to being good or kind of we built cred and access, et cetera, in one dimension, it's really hard to, to put yourself in becoming a beginner again in another place where you're, there's a bit of a dissonance of pride and of confidence and so on. But one, one thing I feel like in general I've, I've realized is that in most areas, most fields, like literally a three-month focused effort of like education doesn't make you a specialist, a world-class specialist, but gets you to be the 99th percentile of humanity in mm. understanding. So you can become like doesn't mean that you're like even in healthcare, right? Like I've been, I've been kind of in healthcare now for eight years. I feel like I'm also still kind of in some ways a novice in a lot of it. But what's interesting is like there's this kind of exponential learning curve at the beginning that pretty rapidly you can become fluent in most things to be able to reason at least using first principles. And I, I think that's something that is, you know, one of the benefits, for example, of liberal arts colleges, et cetera, like college experience, is like for people to really get the opportunity to realize that mm-hmm. in a number of areas, to give them the confidence to not feel like, I always find it interesting when I meet someone in their like early mid-20s and they're like, well, don't know anything about healthcare. It's like, yeah, so what? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, just, you're just at the beginning. It doesn't matter. And realizing that in one or two years, you can be a world-class specialist in most things. Right. Mm-hmm. And and also that creativity, I think, can start playing a role very early that like most great ideas of humanity have yet to be thought, yes. <laughs> I think. And so like I feel that's some one lesson I feel I've learned time and time again, whether at the beginning of like going into work on the geospace that led me into Twitter or into social or into genetics and so on. I feel like I've learned that again and again. And if, I think even within color now as a growing company and so on, it's also an organizational learning, I think, that you feel that the boundary of your expertise is 
prescribed, but that, and I can just, I'll give you one example, even as a company, for example, every time we've expanded our remit of what we do, initially we defined ourselves as a cancer genetics company. When we decided, oh, we should start doing also cardiovascular genetics, for a lot of people, it felt like, oh my God, like we are stepping way out there. Or like even just a year ago, we were doing testing and then we started doing vaccinations that felt like this huge step. But in reality, a lot of these like redefinitions or expansions of identity can happen in like individual months, not decades. So anyways, it's kind of like just a side thought or rant that I think is very important. Yes. And I think very self-limiting and it's yes. very natural, but it's, I think is one of the things that I think in many ways that oftentimes feels like starting to learn about healthcare is not like doing a squirrel jump off a cliff. Like it is much less dangerous <laughs> than that. And I think, but people oftentimes we treat it as if it was. But so back to kind of like the kind of the origin of... of Wait, of, often, oh, <laughs> could I, I just, I loved that point that you made so much. And I, I forget the philosopher, and I'm going to just paraphrase the point, but it's something like, who would you be if you quieted the voices in your head? Do you know who I'm talking about? I forget yeah. the person's name. But I've it's so it true, yeah. those self-limiting stories that we tell ourselves and other people, by the way, the kind of who are you to yeah. show up as X, Y, or Z. Who are you not to? Yeah. Who are you not to make this leap and not to try this? I love yeah. that perspective. Actually, also on your point too, I think like this happens in every domain, every time, is that there will always be some people who are kind of give you the insider, insular, like you don't belong feeling. And that happens professionally, but also happens in normal life, right? Like whether you go to join the corner street soccer league or whatever, like there will always be some people who don't welcome the newcomers. And it is not up to them. It should never be up to them, whether it's like yes. the person in the soccer league or the, the patronizing doctor who doesn't feel like tech people should be doing healthcare. There will be people who, who don't welcome you where you want to go, but that really should not be up to them ever. And I think it's incumbent on the newcomers to be respectful and to be thoughtful and to try to understand where they're stepping into. I think mm -hmm. that's one of the big mistakes a lot of tech people, I think we tend to make going into new fields and places like healthcare, I feel like I always bristle whenever I either hear in myself or I see others where it's like showing up to a new space and acting as if like, oh, it's just because people here weren't, there's a big problem and clearly all they needed was me, the smart person to show up and tell them how it's done. I think it's also important to not have that behavior because I think there we miss the opportunity to learn and also miss the opportunity to get the support of the people we need to help us. So I think it's kind of, there's two sides to it, but I think it's really critical to not let the kind of insular reactions. And sometimes they're like from well-meaning, genuinely kind of kind people, but that they just have that reaction. But it's, they're not the enemy, but it's not up to them to decide if you're, yeah, if you're going to be in the club or not. So, Hey, often that, that last comment. I was just thinking about your background as an immigrant. And again, like a big percentage of our community identifies with a similar background. And they often tell stories about their parents or their loved ones saying, don't do that. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. don't, especially don't take risks. Don't do a startup. Don't join this tiny company. And I was just thinking about you graduating from college and starting a company that you described as a failure, but was acquired by another company. Did your parents encourage you in that direction, you know, or were they worried for you? And yeah. the feedback is always described as like affectionate, wanting to protect me from failure. 
like, that's like that's where it's coming from. Yeah, it's. I think it's like all parents. It's like <laughs> I think you have much more sensitivity to downside risk. Yes. And I think, as opposed to the individual, I think you're seeking to be the best version of what you can be. Mm-hmm. I think for parents, they primarily don't want you to be hurt to get hurt, right? Yes. Like in, in the various definitions of getting hurt. And I think it's a very, just very natural. I mean, interesting for me. I mean, for example, my my mother herself was an immigrant into Morocco, into kind mm-hmm. of an environment where she took a very big personal risk, et cetera, for being into a different country that at the time, for example, was not welcoming of a foreigner, et cetera. And like as a, from a marriage standpoint, and but obviously like was highly accepted over time and so on. But, and also my father himself was an entrepreneur, but also in a very different environment where like mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur and in the... In Silicon Valley, you raise money from venture capitalists, you get tons of cash. And if the thing blows up, yeah, you lost time and you got some bruises emotionally, but you can walk off and do the next thing. Mm-hmm. In most of the world, being an entrepreneur means you go and you raise debt from a bank, collateralized against all of your personal assets, like mm. your home and everything else you have. You, the thing fails, you lose everything, right? And that was the environment, you know. I grew up in seeing my father do that. And so the definition of entrepreneurship, I think, in most of the world is actually, that's more like the squirrel jumps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> squirrel jumps where it's like the level of personal and financial risk is just a completely different ballgame. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, like whenever I would do these things that I could see my parents being like, oh, concerned about the risk, I'm like, you guys are not in a great position to to caution on this front, but I think it's just very natural. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was talking with Cal Patel, who's the CEO of Bright Insight. His parents immigrated to the US from India. And he was talking about like your immigration story was a way bigger risk than me starting this company. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like on a relative basis, you all were bigger risk takers. But I know it's as parents, we want to protect our kids. Of course we do. But I want to get back to color. So here you are at Twitter. You could have just put your feet up and rode off into the sunset. Like you had done it. You had started a company. It was acquired by Twitter. You could have just taken the easy street from there on out. And instead, you saw this opportunity and decided to go after it. Will you share more about your thinking in that moment? What excited you about it? You know, honestly, with all these things, like oftentimes randomness and circumstance, I think, play as much of a role as linear thinking. (laughs) But there are a few threads there. So first of all, I had had, this was very private and very personal. Like I, even after founding Color, I did not talk about it. So I like, so, but my grandmother had passed away from breast cancer. My mother was a two-time breast cancer survivor. And while actually I was at Google, she got a genetic test that found she had a mutation in a gene called BRCA2 that dramatically increases women's risk of breast cancer. I also got tested because I had 50% chance of carrying it. And that turned out I also had it, which also for men has a number of other implications. And so I personally kind of like done some research and started to understand a little bit more about it. And also just kind of like going through the experience of being a patient for this thing and seeing the missed opportunity of that information, especially for my mother and my grandmother. I mean, at the time it was like the, but that information could have actually been much more valuable pre-disease. But that was personal. And I even actually, as we started Color, no one at Color knew that that was part of my story. And actually, I never didn't talk about it until we launched the product. Like, so two years into, like actually most of everyone, in, aside from my co-founder, 
he was the only person who I told everyone else in the team found out about it from the story in the New York Times about wow. the color launch. And it was because I felt it was just very personal at the time. And the only reason I decided to actually be public about it was that I felt that it was like I had an anxiety around. I did not want to feel like I was taking advantage of this thing that was personal to promote something that felt like a company. But I realized that the flip side of it is that it was a real story that I would be remiss to share it to help other people actually have the opportunity to save their lives or that of their family members. And so that was kind of one side of the kind of core of color, even though like most people did not know that that really played a role early on. The other side of it that was completely different, which was that the science and technology behind genetics, I thought was really interesting in terms of as a basic tool to connect like data and technology to healthcare in a very scalable way. The way color played out over time actually turned out very different. I feel like my assumptions there was based on knowing nothing about the industry and thinking, okay, you know, all that healthcare needs is more information. And you just, if you have all this information that you can bring to people, you can solve all these problems naturally, you know, like that would, the, the system would know what to do with it. What we found out over time as color, you know, evolved through different like phases of its growth and its evolution is that the science and the medicine of it was actually in some ways the easiest part of the problem. Great scientists had already solved the hard part there, but the hard part that really was not addressed and is today like the real core of what color is about is realizing that even doing simple things for people in their daily lives and making them accessible to them was actually the hard part. Like we built a system that evolved out of like the healthcare system evolved out of scarcity where we choose a small number of people in our society where we load them up with all the information we know about healthcare. We call them doctors. We put a lot of resources around them to enable them to do their craft. And it's a very broad spectrum, right? Like all the way from like prescribing birth control pills to doing brain surgery, right? Like huge spectrum, but it's it evolved into in the system that assumes access and the distribution of services and products of healthcare are a scarce resource and scarce good in, from a concentrated infrastructure that we build, which made sense, I think, at the origin. But I think the counterpoint to that and where I think the opportunity, I think, of technology and healthcare, one of the big ones, is that what technology does is that it, it actually enables us to make simple things completely abundant. And I think that's now the big opportunity, which is like moving from that, you know, mode of scarcity to figuring out how to make the 80-20 rule. Like there's probably 20% of everything we do in healthcare that we can think of as completely abundant and make it accessible to everyone in a way that really feels free. And I think that's what the internet has done for other slices of our lives, right? Like we now feel like, you know, music is transactionally free when we are on Spotify or iTunes. We feel that movies are transactionally free when we're on Netflix or that getting a, a ride is transactionally free aside from paying for the ride, obviously, like Uber and so on. Like that is that I think is actually one of the big kind of learnings where kind of like it started off around like, oh, if we give information, everything gets solved to realizing actually you need to that entire both getting the information as well as making the use of it needs to be made abundant 
And that is, I think, has become over time, like the big, I think, opportunity for us to have an impact. Thank you for that, Othman. And can you bring us up to speed on some specific cases, like where you're drawing pride and excitement and a sense of satisfaction from your work as we move from this model of scarcity to abundance? How is color making that happen? How is it changing people's lives? Yeah, so I think the last two years, I mean, our work through the COVID pandemic has been, I think, really interesting, I think, given us the opportunity, I think, to take this model that we had built initially around prevention, and it created this, I think, big shift, I think, in both people's expectations for healthcare, as well as how we need to deliver services. So over the last two years, now Color has been working with both public health, as well as like major employers, for example, who serve very diverse populations, going from white collar workers and some of the you know biggest companies in, in the country to very kind of like blue collar workforces and very kind of like rural environments and so on. But the big common need was that we, for the first time, I think we were forced to, as a society, to take something that was very simple. And when all of a sudden done, like if you think about a COVID test or a COVID vaccine, the healthcare components of that, those are not complex procedures, right? Like you're not doing brain surgery. But there was a big need to figure out how to get those to everyone as fast as possible. And I think despite all of the, there, was, there are a million things I think that we collectively could have done better through the last two years. But when you step back, like it is truly remarkable what's happened, right? Like we have vaccinated billions of people. We have delivered probably tens of billions of tests, <laughs> in not completely equitable, but much more equitable way than we do for any other part of healthcare. And so with color, what I'm most proud of, I think, is that we have stood out as being one of the key partners for public health departments, for example, serving extremely diverse circumstances all the way from public school systems. So we run the biggest public school testing program in, in the country the vaccinations programs that span, again, very diverse environments, all the way from like community settings to churches, inner city neighborhoods and so on, prison systems, right? Like, and I think that for us, like it's been a kind of an opportunity to bring to life and also discover this model that we had been thinking about, which was the way to deliver public health and population health is to put it into the context of where people's lives actually happen. And that I'm both very proud of the work we've done, but also really excited about the road ahead because I think that is the model to do most of these other parts of public and population health that don't need to be in this like centralized health system model and going through a bunch of hurdles and jumping, <laughs> like jumping through all these hurdles for people to access them, but rather taking basic healthcare to them where they live or where they go to school or where they go to church and so on. This is so fascinating to me. And as you're talking about these questions of access, I, I interviewed Keenan Weirabeck, the CEO of Zipline, and his company, they use drones yeah. to deliver blood and vaccines. Yeah. They've delivered hundreds and hundreds of thousands of COVID vaccines. And they started in Africa, but then they've brought it back home and they're working with Walmart to deliver healthcare supplies to rural Arkansas. That's kind of their first test case in the U.S. And it just reminds me, you said we're bringing this to where people are. 
we're bringing this to where they are already living their lives rather than asking them to go outside of their typical environment to access the healthcare. Yeah. And I love that story and I find that that it resonates deeply and I'm wondering where you got the insight and the empathy cuz you could have started this company yeah. and made it a really high priced thing for like the super wealthy end of the spectrum of the American population and instead like you clearly care a lot about ensuring accessibility to the wider community. Yeah, I mean I think like on the path of products and impacts etc I think there are some things that the right path for them is to start off the kind of small expensive and then try to kind of work down or the other end of the spectrum but I think for me one of the pieces of intuition that I feel has kind of played out again and again in in our work but I've seen I've experienced in a lot of other aspects of like digital products I've worked on is that the most predictable and consistent way to get anyone to do anything <laughs> is not like so there are a bunch of tools that people can use right like you can try to incentivize them whether it's like socially or pay them you can try to scare them you can try to educate and convince them etc but by far the thing i've seen happen again and again is in terms of if you want people to do more of anything is just to reduce the friction and the transaction cost mm. that's literally why there is a search box in every browser like i worked on on that <laughs> and when we were working on that a bunch of ways to get people to search more on google the single thing that was always 100% no question like was you made it faster more people searched that's the reason we listen to more music now is because you don't need to go to tower records <laughs> you can just that's why amazon has a one click checkout that's why we get more rides on uber than we did with taxis and i think that's incredibly consistent and i think with health services there's one half of healthcare where you actually don't want people to use it more like you know or you don't want an overuse right like you don't want you know unnecessary knee surgeries or whatever knee replacements on the flip side like the part of healthcare that's around prevention and around like basic access and around like whether it's like basic women's health or behavioral health services or covid services and so on the challenge is under the lack of access and underutilization and that's where like i think a lot of our intuition on this is is like really focusing on that like reduction of cost of not just financial but also of transaction cost like in the us i think about 60% of americans are hourly workers if you tell someone to in order to get any health service that they need to go and find a doctor do the research, find the doctor, schedule it, take a bus, go there, etc. Even if you pay for the the pills, you haven't paid for all of this like all the other parts of the cost to them and then that is what causes people not to use it. And unlike when if you are in an acute setting, like if you are a cancer patient, you being a cancer patient is a primary identity of who you are at that time, right? Like if I'm a cancer patient, you ask me to describe myself, probably in the first like 5 or 10 statements I make about myself, is that I'm a cancer patient. And so for me to integrate, that becomes part of my life. On the other hand, if you're just going about your life, you don't have a major thing going on, but we need you to take care of your health. That is not a cross-section of who you are or where your life exists. For you to go and get health, if that means you need to go out of your normal life, 
that is high transaction cost. On the flip side, if you're the thing that's going to get ensure that you manage your cholesterol or that ensures that you take care of your mental health and so on, just shows up where you work, where your kids go to school, where you go to church, that like is an order of magnitude more accessible. And I think that's how you help, I think, people for whom the transaction cost is the most prohibitive. And I think that's like both, I think, a huge human impact, but also I think like one of the biggest like opportunities for technology as legitimately as also as a kind of from a business opportunity, like it is such a huge part of our economy where we already are spending a huge amount, but not getting the right amount of value. So I think to me as a kind of also as even with my entrepreneur hat on, that feels like exactly like what happened in retail, what happened in transportation, media and so on. It feels very similar. I mean, healthcare is more has a lot of complexities, but like the underlying, I think, components of that, I think, are are very consistent. And then again, like the the human impact of that is, I think, way higher than most of the other things that you know we've done in in tech. And so, so to me, that's what's you know most exciting about about our work. I think it's really interesting that one of these core insights that you had around reducing friction to increase accessibility. That was from your experience in tech. I mean, you described mm-hmm. accessibility of healthcare to Google's search box. And I just think that it's fascinating that you brought that insight into an entirely new sector. Yeah, and actually, I feel sometimes we've taken the wrong lessons where I've heard of a lot of, for example, people from tech or healthcare people who look at tech and they look at Google and think that it's an information advantage. So for example, in healthcare, I think there has been a big cycle of tech meets healthcare that's around like, oh, we're going to take all the EMR data and do a bunch of machine learning on it. And the data is a big asset that we're going to protect and et cetera. Whereas in reality, like, I don't think Google's advantage comes from the data it has. I mean, the data has value, but like by far it's the infrastructure, the model, the product, the speed. And I think even if you erase all of Google's databases, I think within a few months, it would have recovered most of its value <laughs> because I think like the system and the mode of access is much more valuable and durably valuable than just the data you have at a point in time. Othman, I know we're coming up on time and I have two more questions so we can view them as two lightning mm-hmm. rounds and I'll give them to you up front. The first question is, you said you're even more excited about the future of color than what you all have built over the last eight years and where you are right now. So I, I would love for you to share a couple minutes on the future of color and what you see coming down the pike. And then my last question for you is going to be, you've had such an extraordinary career and I would love for you to, knowing what today, what advice would you have given your younger self as you were embarking? on your first company Mm. as an entrepreneur or even your early years at Google, what advice would you give your younger self? But just starting with the future of color, where are you all headed? So I think where we're headed is like, we've gone through, I think one of the biggest disruptions in the biggest industry in our economy that has this huge responsibility and opportunity, I think. I think what's happened too is like, consumer expectations have drastically changed. Like now we've seen that, you know what, yeah, When push comes to shove, we can deliver basic health services very broadly, transactionally, very efficiently, right? Like now, like most of COVID testing and vaccines are happening at like sub $50. There is nothing else that happens in healthcare. Like you shake someone's hand and it costs a hundred bucks. And we have shown that A, that's possible. And to individuals that we can make it convenient and accessible. 
And so I think that pressure of like, okay, like we can apply this every bunch of other areas, I think is going to be very high and also much more accessible. So I'm really excited about like taking our model and applying it with public health partners, with employers, with payers to serve people in kind of their context of their lives for a bunch of other healthcare areas. So we're already working and doing work in HIV and other STI. We are doing work in the cholesterol metabolic management. So that's been starting. I think we can do a lot in women's health. They can do a lot of behavioral health, exactly taking the same model and just applying it and making these services accessible, again, like in this footprint that we have now, like across schools, workplaces, and so on. So that's kind of how I see the future. I mean, it's kind of like just there's this model of the basic healthcare comes to you. And it doesn't mean that it's in a website, like literally it can mean it's like it's just part of how your school works. Your kid's school is one of the biggest places where you can do basic healthcare for kids. And that's how it happens in a lot of countries. And I think this is the model for it to happen in the U.S. So that's kind of how I think about the road ahead for us. And in terms of the lesson or kind of advice, I think I would come back to that point that we talked a little bit about earlier, which is to not hesitate to jump in to things that we're ignorant in, to try to do it with kind of openness and humility, but also with the kind of confidence and curiosity, I think, to discover new areas and new like, I think it's easy to just follow, get excited about whatever is like at the top of the kind of newspapers and the current time and that follow the hype cycle. But I think when people just kind of choose to dive into areas and kind of not sit on the sidelines for too long, I think like I've heard and seen and myself have done it where it's like, oh, I, I need to wait for to be fully ready. And it's like, you're never going to be ready. And uh, you just... Got to jump in and give it a shot. And it's okay. Like if things don't always work out, you can try again. Osman Laraki, CEO of Color. What a treat to hear from you today about your company, about your life, the path that you've walked. Really appreciate all that you've shared. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.